Welcome to another lecture in the series. This one is titled The Integrity of the Christian Bible. <coughs> another uh, lecture in the series is titled The Textual History of the Quran. And I might just as well have called this The Textual History of the Bible because it's very similar talk. <coughs> and what we're going to look at is the integrity of the script as it has been preserved and as it has been handed down to us <coughs> over 2,000 years since the Bible was completed. How authentic is our scripture? <clears throat> I read many books today that attack the integrity of the Holy Bible, uh, claiming that uh, the four Gospels of the New Testament were fabricated uh, dates later than people believe they were first written. I hear others saying that the Christianity of the New Testament was just one of a diversity of different interpretations of Jesus' teaching and that other writings such as the Gnostic Gospel should be given equal authority to the Christian Bible. And one can go on and on, and you just cannot believe at times the level of the onslaught that comes on our scriptures. And I'm not at all persuaded that the motivation for this is simply a scholarly search for the original truth. <coughs> what I'm going to do in this talk is show you just how strong the authority is for the integrity of our scriptures. In fact, in antiquity, and this goes right back to the times when um, historical manuscripts were first preserved and when manuscripts were first written out by hand before printing came into vogue, you'll find that there is no book <coughs> that has been so well preserved and in so many different copies, in so many different forms of manuscripts, portions of books and so on, as has the Christian Bible. We have a book of tremendous integrity and authority, as you will see from this lecture. Firstly, let's have a look at the history of the text of the Bible from its completion at the time uh, when it came to fulfillment, when Jesus ascended to heaven, when the New Testament was fulfilled. Perhaps I should just say in anticipation of that, if anyone should say, how sure are we of the integrity of the text prior to Jesus, the Old Testament text, it is the only scripture the Jews have known over their history. Uh, it goes back to right the very time of Moses himself. It's translated into Greek through the Septuagint, 200 years before Jesus. And there, in fact, are just n virtually no evidences for any alternative text or even any variation of the Old Testament text other than the manner in which we have it today. And it is very interesting that although Judaism has always anticipated a fulfillment and a furtherance of revelations from God and a completion of those, particularly the coming of the Messiah, the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture stopped some 400 years before the time of Jesus, went through a considerable length of time of at least a thousand years from Genesis uh, to Malachi, and then suddenly just stopped in Medea. And as uh, a young Jewish friend said to me many years ago, he said, we really don't quite know what happened because the uh, Jewish scripture tends to pick up momentum, tends to, to gain ground, and it builds up with a pulse towards the coming of the Messiah. And at the end of the text of the Old Testament, when you look through the minor prophets, you can see a, a sort of almost throb of anticipation as Judaism moves towards its fulfillment and climax. And he said, and then... He said, God just stopped speaking to us. And we've never heard from him since. But what we have is that climax. We have that fulfillment in the New Testament. And that settled the issue of Scripture. And when the New Testament was codified in the first, second, and uh, the latest, the third century after Jesus into the form that we know it today, that settled it. No new books to come. Simply the fulfillment of everything the New Testament anticipates. What is the integrity of the scripture. Well, firstly, since the resurrection of Jesus, we have, in the earliest records, we have three complete texts of the Bible, uh, not entirely as it stands exactly today. You have the Shepherd of Hermas is attached to one of these. I think it's the Codex Sinaiticus. One or two portions of scripture not included. But we have a remarkable <coughs> body of evidence that the Christian Bible as it stands today, as we know it, is that which was there at the time of the 2nd and 3rd century, 4th and 5th after Jesus. 
The Codex Alexandrinus misses only a few parts of the New Testament. Today as it stands, whether they were omitted or whether they've been lost is not known to me. All I know is that the text is remarkably complete in every other respect. That goes back to the 5th century after Jesus. The only parts missing, parts of Matthew's Gospel, John's Gospel, and 2 Corinthians. Maybe lost, not there for whatever reason, we don't know. Second one is the Codex Sinaiticus, which dates back to the 4th century after Jesus. That came originally from the Imperial Library of St. Petersburg. And then the Codex Vaticanus, which dates back to the 4th century as well. And that is uh, held today in the Vatican Library in um, Italy. The other two are held by the British Library, British Museum. <clears throat> and they've been there for many decades. These three texts are remarkable records of the intact Bible to the extent that we know it today. And they date back to no more than three centuries, two of them after Jesus and the other one four centuries. A few leaves missing, as I say, here and there, but a remarkable overall preservation of these books in a complete form. And the important thing is it's the Old Testaments and the New Testament as we know them and also dates to two centuries prior to Islam and two of them as say even to three centuries prior to Islam. We also have dating back a thousand years uh, ago, Hebrew Masoretic texts. These are the oldest um, manuscripts known to us of the Old Testament in its Hebrew form. Um, these other two that I meant, these other three I mentioned are all in Greek. They were Greek translations. It's basically the Septuagint Old Testament and the Greek New Testament together in one composite Greek whole. But the earliest Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament that we have are much later. They go back to 1000 AD. The reason being that uh, the Christian church, as it developed <coughs> from the very beginning, put its mind and its attention not to Hebrew text, but to Greek text. Septuagint was well known. And because the common language of the day was Greek, what English is today, lingua franca of the world, and because the New Testament was written in Greek, <coughs> so the Christian church focused on preserving Greek texts of the Old Testament. And it was the, uh, the Jewish remnant that of Israel spread across the world at that time after the dispersion in AD 70 and AD 130 that preserved the Hebrew text, but not to the same extent. Old Testament texts go back to about 1,000 years from the present date. But then, of course, in 1947, <coughs> Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered at Qumran in Israel. <coughs> Here we found portions of the Old Testament that pushed the Hebrew manuscript record back by a further 1,000 years, right to the time of Jesus and even up to 100 years before Christianity. <coughs> At least two almost complete texts of Isaiah survived here. They're 2,000 years old. Many other parts of the Old Testament, different portions of them were found. The remarkable thing about the discovery of Isaiah is that you have now actual documentary evidence that the predictions of the virgin birth of Jesus in Isaiah 7.14, the uh, foretelling of the coming of the Son of God, the deity himself, in Isaiah 9.6-7, and the death and resurrection of Jesus as an atonement for our sins in Isaiah 53.1-12, are all recorded <coughs> in these two manuscripts and are there in a handwritten text remaining to the present day. We then also have the Latin Vulgate, which is a translation into Latin done by Jerome in the 4th century. That we have to this day, that survives and is evidence again of the integrity of the whole Bible as early as the 3rd century after Jesus. And then we have, by the end of the 4th century after Christ, anything up to 4,000 manuscript evidences of New Testament books. Some cases whole books, some cases just a page, just a fragment, portion, or even a combination of books of the New Testament together. But an, by historical standards, an awesome number of manuscripts surviving, 4,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. There isn't the remotest evidence for any other book of an comparable antiquity in manuscript form from the time of Jesus himself, say the writings of Cicero or Julius Caesar and others, in their case, most of the 
texts that survive is just a handful of them from about the time of the Masoretic texts, about a thousand years after Christianity was founded. But uh, it's just a sign of how highly these texts were regarded, how jealous the early Christians were to preserve them, and the tremendous conviction of the integrity, the authenticity of what they're handling that made them look after them and keep them going. By the time printing started a few centuries ago, around the 16th century, uh, we had uh, surviving today up to 15,000 handwritten transcribed texts of the New Testament scriptures. Remarkable number. All right, that's the history of the text. And as I say, by comparison, and you'll see just now, because I'm going to draw a comparison with some of the other texts surviving from that era, the Quran itself, <clears throat> it's an absolutely outstanding record for the integrity of the Bible. And to just add to that, in terms of the textual history of it, it's remarkably consistent. So it's the same books that we have in the Bible today, the same chapters, the same verses, except for a minor portion of variant readings and a couple of other anomalies, which I'm going to mention to you and take them as far as we know, as far as they go. The first I'm going to mention is variant readings. Well, when we look through the New Testament, we find that we have a number of manuscripts where you have an odd verse here and there that varies from another. Uh, either it doesn't read quite the same as it does in another gospel, or alternatively, it doesn't exist in another manuscript of the same gospel from comparable antiquity. We have a number of these, but in fact, by the time you put them together, it only affects about one thousandth of the text of the New Testament in terms of the earliest texts that survived to this day. Bart Ehrman, in his book Misquoting Jesus, <coughs> goes out of his way to produce what appears to be a voluminous number of variant readings in manuscripts of the New Testament going right back through its history, its written transcribed history uh, down to the 15th century. <clears throat> but when you look at these carefully, you find that the vast majority of them are absolutely insignificant, inconsequential, as Ehrman himself admits, merely substituting the word Jesus for he or something like that, not affecting the text at all. But what is not in immediately apparent from Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, is that even the rest of them, once put all together, once you combine them together, leave you with no evidence whatsoever that the New Testament texts were anything other than what we have today and that the Christian message was anything other than what it is today. Because you'll find that, as some people have, uh, have suggested, that we, from all the readings we have and the comparisons of variant readings, that we have the whole New Testament. That is virtually a given. The variants are uh, different transcribing, sometimes textual errors, sometimes deliberate uh, errors made by scribes who thought they were improving the text or removing a difficulty. Uh, I won't hesitate to inform you that that exists in uh, New Testament manuscripts. But it is so negligible so peripheral that it doesn't affect the text as a whole. Take, for example, some of the typical well-known variant readings of the New Testament. Mark 15, verse 28, uh, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, He was reckoned with the transgressors. And that comes from Isaiah 53, verse 12. Now that appears in some texts of Mark 15, verse 28, and not in others just drops out completely, either because it was omitted in error by a scribe whose error uh, was perpetuated in sub subsequent uh, texts done of that verse, or alternatively, it's possible that another scribe, knowing this uh, passage from another gospel, simply inscribed it there because they thought it was a good place to put it or to elaborate the text, embellish it, whatever. <clears throat> but the fact is that in Luke 22:37, the same text appears, and here there's no dispute about its authenticity in the original text because it appears in every manuscript of Luke's gospel surviving. For I tell you, Jesus said, the scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was reckoned with the transgressors. And all that is in any event is just a quote of an Old Testament passage, <clears throat> Isaiah 53, which is quoted all over the New Testament in support of the fact that Jesus was the one of whom the book was speaking when predicting his atoning death and subsequent resurrection. Then we move on to a, a similar text, Matthew 21, verse 44. 
And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Once again, that appears in a number of uh, manuscripts surviving of Matthew's gospel and doesn't appear in others. When you ask the question, how is this so? Why does it appear consistently in more than one manuscript, but also is omitted in more than one manuscript? <coughs> Probability is, as I say, that either a scribe at one point early on omitted the text in error, and the result was that it became omitted in all subsequent copies of Matthew's Gospel done from that manuscript, or alternatively, as I said, somebody added it and, it, and the same result happened. But once again, it's irrelevant because it's repeated in Luke 20, verse 18. Exactly the same verse. And there again, it appears in every single text of Luke's gospel. Then we move on to Matthew 27, 49. And that is the piercing of Jesus' side. This is a very scarce um, variant. It is only found in a very few copies of Matthew's gospel and does not appear in the bulk of them at all. But again, this is a perpetuation of a verse found without any question at all uh, regarding its authenticity in John 19, verse 34, where it says uh, one of the soldiers took a sword and had pierced his side, and at once there came out blood and water. Um, Every manuscript of John's Gospel contains that little bit of historical evidence, and that is what's recorded in Matthew. Once again, probable that some scribe thought he was actually improving the text of the New Testament by taking a valid New Testament statement and simply including it in another book. Um, you can reflect on the wisdom, and in fact, the integrity of his action by saying you don't do that. You leave the original text as it is. But the point is, whatever, however you view whatever caused this variant, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't affect anything. It doesn't undermine for one minute the integrity of the New Testament as a whole. Just to mention to you that, uh, contrary to what many Muslims seem to think, we didn't uh, cover these things up. All of these variants today, certainly the major ones, are all recorded at, as footnotes in any modern manuscript of the New Testament, sorry, modern um, translation, modern printed version in English of any New Testament text. 1 John 5, 7 is different. Here you have a very interesting statement. Uh, it says, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And then it says there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Well, the interesting thing is here that the second part of that text is found in every manuscript of John, 1 John. But the first part is not found in any of the earliest manuscripts, going back right to the beginning. In fact, first appears in the Vulgate. And it subsequently appears in Greek manuscripts going back to later centuries but none of the earliest manuscripts have this verse included. Uh, this is almost certainly an accretion. It's an addition. may just have been a scribal note that uh, some early theologian looked at these words, the spirit, the, the water, and the blood on earth agree. These three are one. And he just thought, well, that actually gives way to a neat Trinitarian statement, and perhaps he just put it in as a note on the side. There are three that bear witness in heaven, Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And he just wrote it in. And a subsequent scribe might have thought that it was actually intended to be part of a text that a scribe felt he'd missed and just put it as a note to remind the next person who copied the manuscript to include it. We don't know. We can't tell. But once again, it doesn't affect the core text. It doesn't affect the, the whole rationale of the New Testament, the doctrines of the New Testament, the theology of the New Testament, whatever. Because it's a Trinitarian statement which has... Parallels in Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Ephesians 2, 18. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. These three are one. There's a parallel to Matthew 28, 19. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Same three persons, same singular essence. In Luke 22, you find an interesting variant from verses 43 to 44 says that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, being in an agony, he became very, very stressed. And his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling on the ground. 
Now, very interestingly, this variant is not found in most uh, texts uh, or most manuscripts recording uh, Luke's gospel, nor is it found at all in Matthew, Mark, or John. And Bart Derman has <coughs> drawn an interesting point here to say that this actually tends to go against the very character of Jesus in Luke's gospel. If you read Mark's gospel, the Jesus of Mark's gospel is a, is a man of action. He's on the go all the time. The word immediately appears a number of times in Mark's gospel, almost invariably describing Jesus' next step in his ministry. It shows that he, he had almost a sort of urgency about him, an apprehension at times you find all over Mark, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane when he himself, as in Matthew, cried out to God and on the cross cried these words out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can see a tense, stressed Jesus running through Mark's gospel. No question about that. Whereas the Jesus of Luke, as Ehrman correctly points out, actually seems to be in control of every situation, always at peace with himself, always serene, even on the cross, when his words are towards the people who've crucified him, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, and so on. Um, you can't help but notice that contrast if you read Mark and Luke between the Jesus of the two Gospels. In my view, all they're doing, Mark himself, perhaps having written his Gospel on the authority of Peter, which Papias records in his early writings, Peter himself was an impetuous, impulsive person. So most likely to notice that side of Jesus' personality because it's, it simply coincides with his own and would record whatever he saw of it when it was expressed. But Luke, almost certainly from his sources, which he mentions right in the beginning of the gospel, would have known that there was another side to Jesus as well, that he wasn't just somebody who was constantly anxious, stressed, um, and certainly not in a position losing control of a situation. No, Luke knew from other evidences he had, from other eyewitnesses, that actually Jesus was always in control of any situation. Nothing caught him by surprise. And so he deliberately goes out of his way to balance Mark's gospel. And although he may agree with everything in Mark, and Mark says about Jesus being a bit stressed, he himself would want to, or decided, to show the other side of Jesus, to counterbalance that and to give a more overall balance to the picture of Jesus. No problem. But as Ehrman comments, this Variant reading just seems right out of character with Luke. It might be more in character with Mark, in which case it is almost certainly one of these accretions. It's an added statement. Whether Jesus did sweat drops of blood in the garden or not is not known. Um, must be some reason for putting a statement like this in the gospel. And it may, may well have done so, in which case it's a bit strange to find it as a variant reading to Luke rather than to Mark. doesn't matter. doesn't change the picture at all. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was highly stressed and that he fell down before his father and he said, if it is possible, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it would have been very strange if Jesus had been anything else than very, very deeply moved at the time when he knew that he was about to hand himself over to be crucified and doing so voluntarily. But as Bart Ehrman points out, there are other variant readings of many kinds, but usually so insignificant and small they don't affect the text as a whole. And certainly after reading through Bart Ehrman's book, I myself found nothing there to change my uh, picture of Jesus or the New Testament as I've known it for all the years that I've believed it to be the Word of God. It still leaves me with the same overall picture that you found there right at the beginning, and I've yet to find anyone produce any kind of evidence that remotely suggests that the New Testament uh, Gospels do anything but project the truth and the core uh, reality of who Jesus was and what happened to him, what he said, what he did, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Um, there's evidence, it's well known, we've always known this, <clears throat> that two passages of the New Testament may not belong where they are, may not belong there at all, may not ever have been New Testament texts. We're dealing here now not with one particular verse, but we're dealing with a whole passage of anything up to 9 to 11 verses. The one is Mark 16, 9 to 20, and the other one is John 8, 1 to 11. Now Mark 16, 9 to 20 records 
what happened to Jesus after his resurrection. It mentions his appearance to Mary Magdalene and a few other things, his commission to his disciples to go and preach the gospel before closing, that the disciples went everywhere and spread the message. Uh, it neatly rounds off Mark's gospel, which as all commentators have pointed out, that if you take the earliest manuscripts of Mark, which finish at verse 8, Mark's gospel just seems to chop itself off. Now, that's very unlikely. The gospel would almost certainly have had an ending, a conclusion, as all other New Testament books do. They have a beginning and an end, neatly rounded off, started clearly with an in initial introduction. There, it's possible that the remaining portion of Mark was lost at the very earliest time when the gospel was first transcribed for whatever reason, just overlooked, maybe a page, the last page of the gospel just simply became detached or the last, whatever the form of writing was used at the time, the former codex, whatever. And that someone else thought he needed to fill it up and so filled it up with this kind of uh, material. Um, or it's possible that we have the original ending of Mark's gospel anyway, for some reason that people afterwards discovered it and put it back in and added it to, to Mark's gospel and filled it off. We don't know. And if people say, or especially Muslims say, well, that's serious. Uh, you know, we, if you don't know the end of the gospel, how do you know the rest of the gospel is authentic? And the answer to that is the obvious, because we have the rest of the gospel. All the manuscripts of Mark that we have are codices of Mark's gospel. The reason there's a dispute about this is because this is the only portion of Mark's gospel that's in dispute. <clears throat> Once you look through this passage, today, I must be frank, I'm inclined to think that this is an accretion. Somebody just decided to fill this up. The reason being that almost everything said here is, is found in another gospel. And it looks to me that somebody decided to take little bits of pieces of other gospels and fill up the end of the story of Jesus and round it off nicely. But if he did, my point again is that there's no difference between what is written here and what is found in the other three gospels. I'll just give you the examples. From 9 to 11, the verses, the first three verses of this passage, Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene here is repeated in John 20, verses 11 to 18 in detail. And when you go further, you find that his brief appearance to two other people is mentioned in one verse, parallels the story in Luke's gospel, where Jesus met two men coming from the road to Emmaus and discussed with them and went and had dinner with them and was manifested to them. That's Luke 24, 13 to 35. <clears throat> this is why today I'm inclined to think that this little uh, a paragraph in Mark's gospel rounding it off about which we're discussing, about which there's a dispute, actually is an accretion because it paraphrases Luke and just puts everything Luke says into one sentence, that Jesus met two others on, the, on, on a road and uh, was, uh, became known to them. It's a summary of what's in Luke's gospel. And then you find that uh, the commission to the disciples to go out and evangelize is repeated in Matthew 28, 19 and Luke 24, 36 to 43 in different words. In Mark, it's go and preach the gospel to every creature. Then you come to Jesus' ascension to heaven. And we know that from uh, the Matthew's gospel. We know that from the book of Acts. The narrative follows the same sequence as the other three gospels, and the material there is repeated in those gospels. So once again, there's no material difference. And the key issue here is not whether you've got peripheral, little negligible evidences that the text is not 100% perfect, therefore it's untrustworthy. That's not the case at all. It's the very peripheral, negligible nature of these variant readings that makes them of little consequence and validates the core text. I might say that no book in history has come down perfectly preserved. Not a manuscript, a form of a scripture or a writing or ordinary book or whatever. All the ancient books that were transcribed by handwritten copies from one generation to another show variations and show accretions and things in a very similar sort of fashion. And that includes the Quran without any exception, as I've shown in uh, the parallel talk to this one on the textual history of the Quran. Let's have a look at the, the other one mentioned here, and that is John 8, 1 to 11. In this case, we have the story of the woman caught in adultery. 
Now here I have to admit that there's no parallel to this anywhere in the other Gospels. And there's no question that this uh, is a unique narrative, stands by itself. Question is whether it belongs in John 1, 8 to, uh, sorry, John 8, 1 to 11 or not. The story, as you know, is of a woman who was caught in adultery by the scribes and Pharisees. They dragged her before Jesus and said, the law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say about her? And as Jesus bent down to write on the ground, they thought they had him against the wall, so they pressed him. And then he stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. But John says, or this little narrative says, that as Jesus bent down again to write on the ground, one by one, beginning from the eldest, they went out till the woman was standing alone before him. And Jesus said, where are they, woman? Has anybody condemned you? She said, no. And he said, neither do I condemn you. <coughs> Go and do not sin again. Everybody knows that although that story is unique, not paralleled anywhere else, it's entirely consistent with what we know about Jesus, his teaching and everything else in the four Gospels. <coughs> but in this case, there's very strong evidence that it belongs exactly where it's found in John 8. Just to mention to you, some Gospels it's attached to John at the end. In fact, one or two manuscripts, it's even attached to Luke, which appears that it was known to be a core part of New Testament text. But the early transcribers weren't certain where it belonged, so they simply added it. But let me give you the evidences that show that this is real Johannine literature. In other words, whoever wrote John's Gospel wrote this passage as well, because he uses the same word forms, descriptions, style, everything. And not only that, John's Gospel is a is missing something without a narrative right in there because this is the style John uses in his gospel. Well, let's have a look at them. Firstly, John brings out in his gospel from beginning to end a contrast between the ministry of Moses <clears throat> and the ministry of Jesus. I'll give you an example. John 1.17, you get the definitive statement in this connection. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you find in John 6, 31 to 35, that when the Jews say to Jesus, uh, our fathers ate the bread in the wilderness as a sign that Moses performed for no less than uh, 40 years. What sign have you got to show to validate yourself? Jesus' response was, I myself am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But if you eat this bread, you'll live forever. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. And so you see how the grace and the truth and the efficacy and the fulfillment of everything God is planning is in Jesus and that Moses was only a shadow. Now, this is very common to John's gospel. And to save time, I'll just mention two others very quickly. When Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, the Jewish leaders took offense at him. They thought he was breaking the law, especially the fourth commandment, John seven twenty three. And he said to them, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath day, I made a man's whole body well. Moses gave you the law. You circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Why do you take offense at me then if I, on the Sabbath day, heal a man completely? And you see the, again the contrast. Simply a routine form of religion uh, is what people, the Jews would do following Moses' law. But what Jesus did on the Sabbath day is to heal the man's whole body. Once again, superiority of Jesus. John 8, 7 to 9, <clears throat> a blind man is healed by Jesus. And this causes a rumpus. This goes against all the tried and tested traditions of the Jews. So they come up to this young man and they say to him, give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner because he breaks the Sabbath. He shouldn't be doing this. The man looks at him. He says, you know, I don't know all your theology and all that. He said, that I don't know. Whether he's a sinner or not, I couldn't tell you. He said, but well, one thing I do know, he made my eyes see again. He said, let me tell you this, never since the world began has it ever been heard that a man opened the eyes of another man born blind. You see, what he's saying is, Moses may have performed miracles. Moses may have given you your law by which you say that this man doesn't match up. He said, but I'm telling you that he superseded anything Moses ever did by giving me perfect sight. Now, in this passage that we're considering, that's exactly what comes to the fore again. Oh, it's, it's typically Johannine stuff. The scribes and the Pharisees catch a woman in the act of adultery. Uh, 
And they come in as virtually as her, 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 her judges, her executioners, her arresters, her prosecutors. They want to do the whole thing themselves. We caught this woman in the act of adultery. And Moses said that we should stone her. In other words, arrest her, judge her, convict her, prosecute her, and condemn her. You should do it yourselves. So they say to Jesus, under Moses' law, this woman is a sinner who is to be condemned. What do you say about her? But by the time Jesus had finished with them, they all go out convicted of sin. And the implication is clear that under the law of Moses, she was a sinner. But once they come under, and under the light of Christ, all of them were convicted as sinners. See the superiority again. And now here is where this passage fits into John 8. Because the very next thing Jesus says is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. And later in John 8, 46, he adds, which one of you convicts me of sin? A statement that would be a little bit isolated were it not for the fact that he had just convicted all of them of sin. And so you can see that there's strong evidence that this passage belongs exactly where it is found in John's gospel in John 8. I'll give you one or two uh, further illustrations just to emphasize the point. Jesus in John 8 verse 10 in this passage said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now this address to her, woman, is not found in any of the other gospels. But you find in John regularly that John quotes Jesus addressing woman just by that title, woman. Uh, his mother Mary, he turns to her in John 2 verse 4 and says, O woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. John 4, 21, Woman, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That was to the woman of Samaria. In John 19, 26, he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. It was like we would say, sir, it was with Jesus, uh, simply a gesture of respect. And so the same here in this passage. Then again, and here's an important point, John doesn't just let people fall into his um, environment just by chance. He introduces people as he goes along. And you'll see that if you go right through his gospel. But in John's gospel, in the first seven chapters, there is no mention of the Pharisees. But suddenly when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, says the Pharisees argue with him and they say, you're bearing witness to yourself. Your testimony is not true. It's very unlike John to allow these people just to suddenly appear on the scene in a conversation with Jesus and not to introduce them. But right at the beginning of this passage, John introduces them. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, there's so much evidence here that this passage belongs exactly where it is, that the question we have to ask ourselves is, how did it drop out in the first place? We don't know, but the fact that the early transcribers of the New Testament Gospels, especially John, attached this story somewhere, means they knew it was authentic. I want to use an illustration to any Muslim or any challenger of the Christian Scriptures who says that these variant readings, and perhaps even whole passages like this, affect the text as a whole. And as Bart Ehrman goes on to say, <clears throat> and this is where he really turns a mountain, turns a molehill into a mountain, says, how can we trust the manuscripts at all? They were copies of copies of copies of originals. And we find all these variant readings. He gets to the point where he wants to write the whole New Testament off and say, how can we trust these manuscripts at all? Well, I'm going to give you an illustration because sometimes illustrations make more point than just simply theological argument. I want you to imagine that on a football field, they're having a great motor show one day and they've got a hundred of the finest antique Rolls Royces that they can find and they put them on that field. And you go and you have a look and you see these gleaming motor vehicles, beautifully restored, carefully preserved, beautifully maintained. They look like they've just come out of the box. They're all about 70, 80 years old. And they've got their wonderful silver radiator, and the little silver lady on the top, and the name Rolls-Royce in the middle. So they're having a competition, and they decide that they want to decide which one of these is the number one Rolls-Royce on display, which one even beats all the others. So they get an expert in, and they say to Bob, Bob, we want you to be the judge. 
Go around these 100 Rolls Royces and come back and tell us which you think is the best of these wonderful, fine motor vehicles that have been so beautifully and authentically preserved. So off he goes and they watch him and he takes a board with a bit of paper. And as he comes to each Rolls Royce, he looks around here and he looks under the um, awning here and he looks behind the fender there and he sort of taps the tires and he has a look inside the headlights and he makes little notes as he goes along and he goes from one car to the other. And after about five hours of making copious notes and checking everything, he comes back. So you say to him, well, Bob, what do you think? Which is the best? Well, he says, I've got a problem. What's that? He says, look, he says, I found so many evidences on these motor cars that are not Rolls-Royce products. He says that I don't think I can believe that any one of these cars is a Rolls-Royce at all. I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, let me tell you. He says, I had a look inside the headlights and I found Osram little headlamps in there. I didn't find Rolls-Royce headlamps there. And when I went around the tires, I found that this one had a Firestone tire and that one had a Goodyear tire and this one had Continental tires. <coughs> found so many variations in the kind of tires on these motor vehicles that I began to wonder if I could trust these motor vehicles at all. Not only that, but I found two that had a sunshield on the front of the vehicle. And I had a look under there and you know what I found? It said made in France. I said, oh dear, he says, you know, I mean, nothing in a Rolls Royce could be made in France. Looks like something was added to those two Rolls Royces, and that brings in further questions. And then I found in some of them the upholstery looked like it had been redone. I found little bits of variations all over the place. Some vehicles I even found a taillight missing. Another vehicle I found something else, a hubcap missing. So I said to myself, this can't be the perfect car that people say it is. In fact, he says, I found one here that really surprised me. He says, I found it had big drum headlights. All the others have got cone headlights. This one had drum headlights. And you know, when I looked at this, although it called itself a Rolls-Royce and it had the grill and everything, I found that the um, upholstery had been made in Ohio and I found that the tires came from New York. I found almost everything on this vehicle, with the exception of the engine and the grill, was American. He says, the worst thing I found is that I'll check the chassis. Surely that came from England. And he says, no, I see in there made in Massachusetts. I said, well, this vehicle is just a charlatan. It doesn't, can't be a Rolls-Royce at all. So he says, I just can't accept it. Any one of these vehicles is a genuine Rolls-Royce. Sorry, game over. <laughs> well, what would you say to him? I know what I would say. I would say, listen, buddy, why don't you just get into one of these cars with me and take it for a drive? When you've driven it, you'll find out what a Rolls-Royce is. You'll be left with no doubt whatsoever as to what kind of car this is. You see, what Bob is doing is just picking on little things. I mean, this is now the 21st century. You're not going to find original Rolls-Royce tires or headlamps or things in those vehicles. Given a period of time, you expect those variations. The core of the vehicles is still Rolls-Royce. Every one of them is. No question about it especially the engine. I had the privilege of driving a Rolls-Royce once to a motor show. A friend of mine owned it and asked me to drive it. 20 miles there and 20 miles back. And it was one of these big vintage vehicles. And I can tell you, I felt like a king in the cars. I just sat in this beautiful steering wheel and everybody else looks at you and you look down on them. And as I always said, a Rolls-Royce has not a steering wheel, it's got a sneering wheel. That's just what it was. And you may not have known as I repeated the story and Bob obviously didn't know that between 1922 and 1930, Rolls-Royces were manufactured in Massachusetts in the United States of America. And they were distinguished by their drum headlights. And that's why that one had so much American material. And it's the same with the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are not here today for us to ask why some of these anomalies exist in their texts. Not only variant reading or textual variants, but even some of the actual core uh, content of the Gospels, which tends to vary from one to another. Uh, we don't know these things today. But to go back to the original Rolls-Royce, the very earliest ones, there was a gentleman by the name of Henry Royce. And in the early days of making motor vehicles in England, this is right at the beginning of the 20th century, he decided to make his own motor vehicle. Paid all the time and attention he could to it, and created a vehicle which he called the Royce, the Royce car, nothing else. But there were so many individuals creating motor vehicles in those days. 
and he was only one of them. So nobody took much uh, paid much attention to him or noticed him. Also, he didn't market these vehicles well himself. He spent all his time in his factory looking after the car. But the thing about Henry Royce was that he was a perfectionist, and he was determined that he was going to make his car really well. Going to give it individual attention, look after it, and really produce a fine motor vehicle. Anyway, certain gentlemen by the name of Charles Rolls, who knew nothing about motor vehicles, he, he couldn't have put a carburetor together, heard about Henry Royce. And he said, I better go and visit him. I hear he's got a pretty nice car. So he goes down and he says to Royce, Can I drive your car? He said, Yes, yeah, sure. And he hadn't driven it a mile or two. And he said, Royce, this is the finest motor vehicle in England. He said, I've driven all the motor vehicles around here. I'm helping to promote them, even sell them. That's my job. I'm a salesman. He says, but you've got such a magnificent car. He said, uh, why is it that uh, you can't sell this vehicle? Well, I don't know, he says. I do my best. Royce Rolls said, do you do anything to, to try and sell it, to promote it? Oh, I haven't got time for that. He says, I've got to spend all my time making this car. He says, the only way I produce a car like this. So Rolls looked at him in his famous story. He said, you know what, Henry? You make the cars, I'll sell them. That's why Rolls-Royce is the, most, is the finest motor vehicle in the world to this day. The point I'm making is that the moment Charles Rolls got in the vehicle and drove it, now he saw what it was. You can make other vehicles look as fine as a Rolls-Royce. You can clean them up and polish them. But you can only drive one to discover what a unique vehicle a Rolls-Royce is. And that's how it is with the New Testament text. I would have said to Bob, Bob, pick one of these Rolls Royces and take it for a drive and you'll find out what it is. And the same message goes to, to any Muslim who thinks that he's got evidence here that the New Testament is not reliable because of these finicky little peripheral variations and alterations that tell him that this is not an exact copy of what was there originally. I can tell you that no vintage Rolls-Royce today is an exact copy of what was there originally. But nobody doubts that these vehicles are beautifully preserved copies of the finest motor cars ever produced. And the answer I would give to any Muslim, go and read those Gospels. Go and read the New Testament and you'll find out just what a magnificent book this is. I have read the Quran through from cover to cover. I've read many books of history, many religious books. I've read every one of the 55-odd Gnostic texts that have survived in the Nag Hammadi Library. I've read the whole lot. And many years ago, I decided to read the New Testament right through from cover to cover, and I read Matthew's Gospel. I never got past it because the book condemned me. By the time I was finished, I just couldn't bear to read another word of the New Testament. I was so out of favor with God. But I was left with one very firm impression from just reading it. And that was that I was up against the word of truth, the word of God, an eternal scripture that revealed to me the true God for who he really is. And at that stage, I got a clear message out of Matthew's gospel when I finished it. Either become a disciple of my son Jesus or walk away. But the standard of Matthew's gospel, the teaching, the, the morality, the, the service, the commitment, the honesty, the integrity, I could go on, every quality you could imagine was so high that I just couldn't follow it. But the book left an impression on me like no other book has ever made. And I knew I was reading a book that had the divine fingerprint on it. That This was a divinely inspired scripture. When three years later, things changed, I found the motivation to believe that gospel and to follow it. And I went back to it. I then read all the gospels of the New Testament. I read the whole of the New Testament. I read the whole Bible. And I've read it through from cover to cover many times in my life. And it's always left me with the same impression that I had when I first drove a Rolls-Royce motor vehicle, that this book is unique. This book stands out. You can bring all the evidence you like to try to show that the Bible or the New Testament in particular has little variant readings, two passages that are uncertain, little bits and pieces here and there, even in the teaching of the text that you can make something of. But I know one thing, that when I'd finished reading one of those Gospels, just Matthew, all by itself, I had no doubt that I'd read the most unique kind of book that I would ever read in my life. And I've never found anything else like it. I'm being fair. I'm no disrespect to Muslims. But when I read the Quran, it made no impact on me. 
very jumbled up book, very vague, very short on detail, and it just left me with no impression that I'd come face to face with a word that God had authored. The same goes for the Gnostic texts. I've looked at those. Even there, just let me tell you by comparison in closing, that the Apocryphon of John is the only Gnostic text that we have in any numbers of manuscripts, and those numbers are four. We have four copies of the Apocryphon of John. It's the standard uh, Gnostic text, just conveniently given to John. John never wrote it. Apocryphon means the secret book, or the secret teaching of the Apostle John. Well, secret teaching or not certainly wasn't the Apostle John's work. It was written too long after him. But the interesting thing is that in just four copies that we have of this manuscript, they vary so dramatically that you can see that whoever had those two books in their hands, the shorter, the long version of the Apocryphon of John, thought nothing of embellishing it with long passages and perhaps cutting something else out and adding something else and so on. And you find exactly the same with the other Gnostic texts. With most of them, the only copies we have were the single copy found at Nakhamadi. But Eugnostos, the Blessed, is the name of one of these books. And it has a similar book called The Wisdom of Jesus Christ, The Sophia of Jesus. And the amazing thing is that these two books are almost identical. The outline of all the sort of mystical uh, Gnostic teaching, point for point, line for line, is almost identical. Except that the first one goes no further than just have a whole lot of Gnostic uh, teaching and what have you. But the second one has embellished it and made Jesus the author of all the teaching. So at the top of a paragraph it says, and then Jesus or the Savior said to his disciples, and so on it'll go. They thought nothing of just taking a standard Gnostic text and trying to give it some Christian authenticity and just write in all over the place, Jesus said this and this and that and so on. And that's in an absolute minimum of sources that we have for those books. Yet for the New Testament scriptures, we have literally thousands of manuscripts going back where you can see the utmost care was taken to preserve those texts intact right down to the present day. There was no way that those texts could have been preserved perfectly because there are just no perfect human beings on earth that can do transcription of manuscripts without slipping here and there or without even an accretion or a variant reading creeping in. That's happened to the Quran, happened to Gnostic texts, happened to everything. The core text of the Christian scriptures is what it always was. Somebody said, and I close with this quote, the Bible is an anvil on which many hammers have been broken. And if anybody hopes to find another one, then maybe you might do the trick that all the others haven't done. I wish him good luck.